Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, tech heads. Thanks for tuning in for another week of Tech Talk with Matt Dickerson, who has yet another swag of tasty snippets from the news from around the tech world. G'day, Matt. Yeah, g'day, James. I always love your introduction. I never know what I'm going to be this week or what I've been doing this week. So well, I'll, I'll Sorry, I've just called you Matt this time, so um, I've got to get another epithet in there somewhere, <laughs> That's another right. descriptor. <laughs> now, listen, uh, let's start off with uh, the sound of birds slamming into my lounge room window scares the bejeebas out of me every single time. It's common enough just at my house, so I reckon it's probably happening all over the place. But it looks like there's some clever tech coming our way to rescue both me and them. Well, one of the things that we often hear about, James, is the fact that we don't want these terrible wind turbines, those renewable energy wind turbines, because they kill lots of birds. Now, they do kill lots of birds, but it's not the big spinning blades per se that kill birds. It's any structure that we build in the way of birds. So, Well, I gather that. So my house is enough. Yeah? And your house is enough, and it's not that tall, presumably. The 28-storey the mansion you, you've got there is probably not as tall as some other well, things. Well, 27, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you put a mobile phone tower, you put a power pole, you put a skyscraper in the road of a bird flying along, and apparently the experts tell me that Birds have developed over just a couple of years, but they've developed looking down for navigation. They expect some trees maybe to be there, but they don't expect some huge building or tower or wind turbine to be in their road. So they fly along quite happily, looking at the ground, and next thing you know, there's something hitting the top of their head. Well, there's got to be something to do with the, the position of the eyes, because the eyes sit on the side of the head for most birds. You get raptors, the, the birds of prey, that with their eyes in the front, so they can they get the, that triangulation to yeah. zoom in. Yep. But yeah, look, if you're a... If you're a potential prey, you need to be able to see what's coming around you as well as see a possible meal on the ground maybe, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. and and I think that navigation is is a large part of that. But so some research have have worked out all of this and said, well, we don't want to keep killing birds because putting man-made structures in the road of birds is the number one man-made killing of birds. So if you get all the birds, they might be shot or whatever it might be. That's the number one killer of birds. number one killer. Man-made killing, not natural death. The number one man-made way of killing birds is putting a building in the road of a bird. So, yeah, I guess, you know, trees have got a little bit of a softer impact. They can sort of get that sense that they're somewhere getting closer to a tree, but Possibly. the house or the or the, the wind turbine. Yeah, and yeah. I think the trees are a bit lower, obviously. But So some researchers have come up with the idea of just blasting, effectively, white noise. And they've been doing a range of experiments with different frequencies just to see if birds suddenly go, hold on, this isn't natural here. There's something happening a bit different. I'll, I'll go around this, I think. And that's actually been working. So it's that white noise, that shh sound sort of well it's a when i say white noise it's just background noise for you and i yeah, right. we wouldn't really hear it it is in the frequency range that we can hear they've been experimenting around the the four to six kilohertz range the six to eight kilohertz range so it is within that human hearing but you put it at the top of a tower and we're probably not sitting around at the top of a mobile phone tower very often so it's 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 white noise in terms of background noise but enough that birds flying along in that vicinity at that same level of height go there is something different here maybe i should just look up and live, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> and right. An advertising campaign they could run there. Yeah, so it's a classic case of looking at your mobile phone while you walk along the footpath and you smash into the pole. Birds have got it in spades. That's The example they gave was exactly that, James. That you look down at your mobile phone while you're driving or you're walking, you're not looking where you're going. Birds are looking down at the ground to see where they're going and then suddenly there's a structure in front of them. So this whole idea of putting some white noise out there, so far the experiments have been done some different types of birds, different species obviously of birds, and also just trying 
buying in terms of winter and summer because the frequencies will travel through colder air differently to hot air. So just doing experiments, I don't expect these to roll out tomorrow, but if this experimentation continues on, they are actually finding when, they, when they're mapping these birds that they are taking a berth around these speakers that are putting oh, out wow. this noise. Yeah, There you go. So, quite so just a little bit of white noise. Just a little bit, yeah, probably a lot of white noise. But yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in the long run. First world problems here. Charging's pain in the proverbial. Thankfully, science has come out with an answer to save me that minor first world inconvenience. Is that right? Well, it is. Smartwatches, you, you do tend to find that you may be charging them up every day, every couple of days, and you're right, it is a first world problem. You know, I had a normal watch and I just have to put a new battery in once a year, but smartwatches love all the features of them, but charging every night, oh, can't they fix that problem? And there have been a few different solutions they've tried to work on to try and fix that problem. The latest one, though, is absolutely brilliant. There is a material that's known as a thermoelectric generator, and as the name suggests, it relies on differential of temperature. And that uses things like a magnesium and a bismuth material. And typically in the past, it's been a solid material that you could have a temperature difference from one side to the other, and that would generate some electricity. But some researchers have actually put that in polyurethane, put that around a wrist, a human wrist, and then worked on the difference in temperature between the human body and the outside air. And at this stage, they're generating enough electricity just to power a small LED, which I find incredible. Yeah. That's... But it's getting there where they hope that they'll be able to charge or, or power a smartwatch. Obviously, it uses a bit more than just an LED display. And even if they can't get to the stage where they run it completely, they might get to the stage where they could, say, for example, extend it out to three or four days or a week just yeah, by right. putting on a polyurethane band as part of that watch. Now, the, the research is showing that surface area is critical, as so often in science it is, yeah. but the, the wider, if they can produce a slightly wider band, they, they believe they might get to that stage where they could continue to put enough power into a smartwatch to keep us going if not indefinitely, at least a lot longer than they currently are so now. So you might have a smartwatch that extends all the way up your forearm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and so for those people with who who have got poor vision, they'd be able to like read the display nice and neatly. And all Perfectly. Sort of it might yeah. be the sleeve. I, I, I see people with those sleeves, or maybe that's what it'll be, a sleeve with that whole thermoelectric generation. Obviously, there are some problems with it in terms of the temperature. If you're in the middle of winter in a, in a very cold country, then your body heat and the outside temperature big differential if you're in the middle of summer. Provided you go outside, though. That's right, if you're inside yeah. the nice air conditioning. <laughs> so you go outside. I've just got to go outside, Mum, yeah, to charge, charge up. Phone. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're in the middle of summer and the, the temperature outside might be in the 30s or 40s, then you're probably not going to get much of a differential between your skin and the actual outside air. But what I love, again, human ingenuity. We're always looking yeah. at different ways to solve these really important problems like how do I not have to charge my smartwatch each night? But there's such clever solutions to these little problems. And, uh, yeah, if it's one thing we don't have to worry about – then, uh, yeah, you can dedicate your brain space to something else. Yeah. Like more tech talk. That's right. <laughs> now, let's talk about Victoria and when are they going to get it together on electronic ve uh, vehicles? They're, oh, sorry, electric vehicles, I should say. <laughs> get that right. Yeah. yeah um, so they s seem to be... Uh, incentivising them with one hand and disincentivising with the other hand. Tell us about what's going on. Can I use a really bad pun and say they're a confused state at the moment? Uh, they, they just seem to be absolutely confused about what to do with EVs. Very nice, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They're, they're the first state in this nation that will actually be giving a subsidy. So they'll be handing out a $3,000 subsidy for you if you want to purchase an electric vehicle in Victoria. Fantastic. So they get a big congratulations for that. Well done. Well done. And we know from 
the, the stats that we see around the world, the, there's a whole range of different ways to encourage people to buy electric cars. Subsidies is obviously one of those ways because people get scared by the ticket price. So $3,000 off the cost of the car. They've got some conditions associated with that. But in general, happy days. Fantastic. And they can feel a lot better about the fact that they've made the purchase. Exactly right. And they've got 20000 of these subsidies to start off with. So that's a reasonable number of subsidies. So that's fantastic. But... They've already announced before this subsidy that they're going to be the first state in this nation that will start to charge a per kilometre fee to drive an electric vehicle in the state. Yeah, so so this is to pay for the roads, right? Well, I'm not convinced of yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> no, neither am I. Yeah, considering that the fuel tax, well, any, any tax on fuel doesn't go towards building roads anyway, I understand. I think it's probably 30 or 40 years ago since there was a direct linkage between tax at the fuel bowser going directly to roads. It goes back into general revenue and you could say that, yes, it's in general revenue and then some of that general revenue is used for roads, so indirectly, but it's not like they collect X billions from fuel tax and then they spend that same amount on roads. They spend significantly less. But that was the rationale they were using for putting the tax on the EV cars, right? You're not saying that Polly's conveniently came up with a story. James, what are you saying here? Well, sorry, sorry. I'll just back my truck up there, but uh, yeah. Um, so tell me more. Um, so so we've got this subsidy yep. on EV cars now in Victoria. Yeah, so... Two and a half cents per kilometre from the 1st of July this year, you'll pay. And there's a whole range of issues with that. People have said, what about if I go for a holiday and drive a thousand kilometres out of state? Bad luck. You just report your odometer reading. Each time you register your car, they'll multiply the number of kilometres by two and a half cents. There's the extra registration fee you'll pay each year. Goodness gracious me. It gets worse than that. Hybrid cars are okay. I'm not, I'm not excited by hybrid cars as such, but they're okay as a stepping stone for people but they're actually putting a two-cent charge per kilometre for people with a hybrid car. So they're still buying petrol in their hybrid car. They're still paying the fuel tax on that, and they're not paying much less in the per kilometre rate than people with a fully electric car. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So don't forget people people with EVs are still paying a GST and often a luxury car tax when they purchase the car. They're still paying, if if they're buying electricity from their home, they're still paying some GST on that. So they're still contributing to the tax dollar along the way, But again, some governments think that this is the solution to EVs, which again, when we get rid of all petrol cars off the road, this might be a reasonable solution. But at the moment, we need to be encouraging people to do it. So I'm I'm getting political now. Sorry, I'll stop there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So... Um, but you know you can pick up your um, your subsidy on a on a car in Victoria, electronic. Uh, sorry, I did it again. Electric car in Victoria, uh, and they've started giving those out now. Is that right? Yeah, they've started already. So that'll be the thing. They'll start the subsidies now. Then come first of July, they'll start slugging you with the extra tax. <laughs> oh, goodness me. We've already talked about windows at my place uh, with um, you know, Doobie Bird strikes marks on them and all and whatnot. Um, my other problem has got to be that we always forget to draw the curtains. So. During the middle of summer, the room gets stinking hot, and in the winter, all the heat gets out through those windows. But there's now smart windows. Am, am I right? Is this, is this a thing? This is a thing, and I think it's a bit of marketing. Sometimes you put the word smart in front of everything. We should call this smart tech talk. That would yeah. make it more marketable, <laughs> maybe. Right, yeah. Yeah. But, right. but they've got some smart glass now. And you'd be familiar with double glazing. Great idea. Yep. And it's a really good way to keep the temperature outside and inside separated a little bit with that double glazing, good for sound as well. But double glazing doesn't always help you because there might be times, for example, where it might be a bit cold in winter and you might want some of that sun that's outside coming in and heating you up. So you you kind of, you just get a bit of insulation and that's it. 
With smart glass, they've got all of these micro mirrors between the two sheets of glass. So it's in there, it's usually in a noble gas like a krypton or an argon and anything with krypton in it's got to be pretty cool, right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. So, so Thank you, you, noble gases, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you put a noble gas in there, you put some micro mirrors that are controlled automatically and then what they'll do for you is they'll work out whether or not it's better for you to have light coming in, heat coming in, obviously, or light being redirected. So in the middle of summer, you've got the sun blazing away, bringing all this heat inside that you're trying to then cool out of the house. No, the micro mirrors change their angle ever so slightly to reflect most of that heat. So you've still got enough light coming in for a bit of natural lighting, but the heat's being reflected to try and save on your cooling costs. Flip it over to winter, and then you've got the desire for all this sun to be coming in and the sun might be sitting a bit lower in the horizon. So then you've got the mirrors who will slightly redirect that sunlight to bring as much sunlight into the house or into the building as possible to try and heat up things. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, look, you've already got what sold me. Um, you can put me down for about 12 of these things already just for the back room. Yeah, um, yeah looking forward to this coming in and being available on the market. Yeah, and obviously I would suggest that it would be available in skyscrapers, in commercial buildings first. Yeah. Obviously these things will be dearer at the beginning and then they'll filter down. So eventually, yeah, you will be able to put them in your house, have that sort of glass in your house. The estimation of savings, and this is where it gets exciting, the energy savings, the researchers here are estimating about 35% you'll save over the year in reduced heating and cooling costs. Well, there it is right there. Just by having some mirrors there. I haven't told you the price yet, and that might be the scary part. I don't know the price. <laughs> They're not available yet. But it's all right. I'm paying for it yeah, anyway. Okay, good. I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what the researchers want to hear. But it is pretty exciting. A, a, a range of solutions. I mean, people are coming up with ways to produce electricity with renewable power, but also reducing how much electricity we need is a smart thing. And, and this can help climate change just as much as renewable energy can. Well, it's the great energy crisis, isn't it? That, yeah. That's the big thing that we've got a problem with right now is is we're using too much energy. So yeah. if we can be smarter about uh, whether or not we need to you know, warm our house or cool it down, uh, I think, um, yeah, that's a million-dollar idea right there. 3D printing. It's a big game and it's big business. We can print artificial body parts. We can print car parts. What's next? And don't say printing houses. <laughs> oh, damn, that's it. Okay, next <laughs> item. <laughs> so, printing houses, that's it. The I next cannot thing. believe you can now print houses. There's been some prototypes printed, but this is the first house printed that actually has real people living in a real scenario, paying rent, the first commercial situation of people doing it. And it's in Eindhoven, and I've actually been to Eindhoven, and I remember going... So in the Netherlands, right? Yeah. In the Netherlands, yeah. that's right. And I, and I went there, I had to speak at a conference there a few years ago, and I remember walking into the hotel receptionist, and I had no idea about Eindhoven, and I said, I need two things to know about Eindhoven to give me something to basically be familiar with your audience. And she, the receptionist said, white bikes, it's a big issue, which... People can go and research that and find out about the white bike, a, a whole anarchist movement about white bikes, and innovation. They're very proud of the fact that they're innovative. And they spend, or in all of the Netherlands, about 25% of all the research money that's spent is spent in Eindhoven, and it's only got a population of about 230,000. So they really are trying to be at the forefront of innovation. Imagine that. Imagine governments putting money, real money, into genuine science. James, uh, it's not political, remember? Uh, okay, sorry. <laughs> but you're right. You're spot on. So this house has been built in Eindhoven. It's, it's got a married couple that have moved in. They're paying their rent. The 3D printing, there's a few different ways to 3D print houses. The one they've gone for in this particular scenario, they've 3D printed 24 modules of the house and then moved it from the factory to the site and basically 
strap those together or such so and put a roof on. Essentially saying like a corner piece uh, for a wall, not not entire rooms or whatever, but um, you're, you're talking about sections of rooms. Yeah? Sections of rooms, sections, a bit like you see a prefab building put up in a commercial sense. They've done similar with that in this this sort of sense here. But the great part is... Completely insulated walls. The, the walls are very cool because they're actually double concrete effectively with, with bracing concrete in between because the, the 3D printing is basically liquid concrete. It comes out like toothpaste and it just rolls along and lays out a layer then does the next layer and builds up layers of this particular building. So great insulation. You've got double brick or double concrete, sorry, with air in between them. So you've got good insulation properties there. Obviously very quiet, very solid. People said, how long will this last? And I said, well, take a brick veneer or a cement rendered brick house and it's going to be the same as that. It's a it's a concrete house. But how long does it take to, to build one of these? To put all the bits together then? Yeah, well, the actual printing as such is 120 hours. So 120 hours to, to print the components and then really it's like a Meccano set. So like five days. And then this could be printing, of course, through the night. And yeah, 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 that's right, okay, yeah. right. And then like a Meccano set, they bring it and put it together on site. But there's other, other methods as well. This is, again, the first one that's had people living in it. But some other prototypes around the world are actually doing some of the printing on site. So they'll bring well, this big machine and they set it up and then they say, come back in a couple of days and you come back and this 3D printing has finished the entire house. Now, <laughs> when I say finish the entire house, they've still got carpet to put down inside and, and electricals to, to basically figure out internally. Right, yeah, well, it's really sense. doing the entire shell. But what they're also doing is being a bit smarter. They're typically not putting gyprock on the inside walls. They're just leaving the concrete walls inside. It looks... I describe it a bit like a Fred Flintstone house. It looks a bit rough, but it's a it's a bit of character about the look of it all. Yeah, right. And you've got to put your personal touch in the area. That's where you you go get your interior designer if you can afford them. That's but right. uh, or you you know you hang your family p- portraits on the wall or whatnot. Yeah, uh, that's right. Um, and it looks less like Fred Flintstone's place and more like your own. But um, yeah, a remarkable movement in in the construction of houses. Absolutely. And you've got some some really nice things. A third less concrete is used in the, the construction of a house like this. Right. It's obviously done quicker and done cheaper. So in some places, India, for example. India has actually just printed their first 3D house in April. No one's living in it yet. But they printed their first 3D house in some of the areas of India where there are way too many people and not enough housing. They see the government in India sees this as a great solution to try and get housing in some of those places. You've got 3D printed houses. Again, all these are prototypes in Mexico. You've got one made in, in America, which was a, a, a classic architect drawing a, a house that would be near impossible to build, a bit like the Opera House, very difficult to build, but it looks pretty. But they then 3D printed it, printed it not just out of concrete, but concrete and plastic so that they could actually get some of the shapes that the architect drew. So you've got all of these different things happening. So that was my next question because currently you're talking about printing with concrete. Well, as material science develops, uh, surely we've got to expect that, that the house is going to be uh, potentially produced with even more uh, efficient and well, energy efficient materials and, and possibly uh, less resource hungry materials. Yeah, and as well. we, we take away that sort of square shape that typically buildings are, square rectangular shape, and you, you stick a triangle on top. A lot of that's done for strength, obviously, but it's also done for convenience. It's, it's a bit harder for a bricklayer to go and lay bricks around a corner or timber, building a house out of timber and starting to go around a corner, whereas a a 3D printed house, the the concrete just prints around whatever shape the architect draws. And your house will be the talk of the street. (laughs) That's that's right. Everyone loves a story about an epic tussle, wherever it comes from. Um, Who's making the news now in the world of arm wrestling? 
it is an arm wrestle. Sometimes people describe these battles against Apple as David versus Goliath. But yeah, David versus Goliath. Well, this isn't something quite a bit that. More than Goliath, isn't it? I think this is Godzilla versus Goliath, is yeah, the way I describe my it. Goodness. So go back a couple of steps. Apple have been incredibly successful in their business model and in terms of changing the way we do things by having their. Apple Store, where you can go along and download your app and you can buy apps if you want, and you go into some of those apps and you might make some purchases in those apps. So that's all fine. Apple, take their Apple tax. And they make their own rules, yeah? They make their own rules. That's that's Apple in general, I think. Yeah. They make their own rules and people have to either like it or lump it effectively. Yeah. But they charge, if you like, or people pay a tax of about 30%, and it does vary a little bit, but about 30% of the cost of whatever. So you go and buy your app, the $1 you spend on that app, Apple takes 30% of that $1 straight away, and then the other 70 cents might go to the person who's actually built the app, or some parts might go to various areas, but, but Apple always gets their little chunk. Now, Epic Games, who... You'd be familiar with Fortnite, and that's the biggest game. Yeah, my I've sons got. are more familiar than I am, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I certainly am familiar with Fortnite. Yeah, yeah so they've got a, a, an incredibly successful game, and people make in-app purchases. So they might want to buy some extra armor in the game, or buy some extra components in the game, and people are happy with that, and they pay their money. And Apple takes thirty cents or thirty percent of all of those purchases as well. Wow. Now, Epic yeah. Games are saying, "Hold on, we think they're in the game now. They've bought." the game, they've paid their little Apple tax in if they bought a game, but in the game itself, well, we think we should be able to just have a charging mechanism. And Apple's double dipping a little bit there. Oh, they're just taking everything they can, I think. so. making their own rules. Exactly right. Now, Apple would argue, and they are arguing in front of the court, but they would argue that if they want to keep the payment structure secure and they want to know that it's all going to work seamlessly, just like Apple products should, then they need to control everything. And people like Epic Games have said, bar. <laughs> we don't believe that baloney. <laughs> we think that we could make a payment system that's secure as well. In fact, there's other companies around the world that have secure payment systems. So good story, Apple, but we don't believe it. So it really is stand off with your solicitors at 20 paces. Wow. And this is going to be a battle fought to the death because for Apple, there's a lot at stake here. If yeah. Epic Games wins this battle, then every other app developer says, oh, you mean they don't have to charge 30%? You mean it's a monopoly behaviour we're seeing here? Happy so days. Apple can't make their own rules? Yeah. yeah. So it would be a dramatic change in Apple's business model if they were told they can't charge whatever they like or they can't charge only for their apps. In other words, other people can charge separately or the in-app purchases. So there's a whole range of things that could come out of this. For you and I as consumers, we'll probably just keep going along and buying whatever we need to buy and using whatever components of an app store. But... If Apple can't make money at the App Store, it might change things quite dramatically or it might actually get to the point where Apple say, we want everyone to charge for an app because we're not making money out of in-app purchases. So Ah. all those apps that we've had for free over the years, we might start being charged for. So it could be a pretty big change. Yeah, Apple's still worried about where they're going to get their dollars from, aren't Uh, they? I'm feeling sorry for them, James. (laughs) (laughs) Trillion dollar company, you know, it's just struggling for that next 30 cents. Oh, goodness me. Yeah, someone give them a hug at bedtime and see how they go. Okay. Here's another story of yet another great tech misused. QR codes. They've made a lot of menial jobs pretty easy, but 
Even they are subject to being misappropriated, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. A QR code. We walk up to a cafe, we scan the QR code, we put our details in and we walk in and have our coffee. Yeah, I mean, it's solved a big problem for, for the whole COVID issue. Yeah. 2020 was able to happen courtesy of the QR code. That's right. And people didn't know what QR codes were a long time ago. Yeah. I actually had business cards printed maybe five years ago with a QR code on the back. I thought it was super cool. Hey, people will use this QR code. They'll scan my details straight in. And in all the years I've had those business cards, until 2020, the sum total of people who use that QR code was one. It was me. No, <laughs> no one got it. They were, what's this right. thing? What's this strange array of, of, of squares you've got on the back of your business card for? Now people use it. That's great. But we do have a lot of trust in it. So a man in Adelaide thought he could take advantage of this trust. And he went along and every cafe, every restaurant, every pub around his area that had a QR code, he stuck his own QR code over the over top the of it. top of them? Yeah. Now, you and I, when we see a QR yeah, code... you just scan it. That's right. We yeah. don't know that it's going to be different to the, to the one... We've been sufficiently trained. That's right. We yeah. know what to do. You hold your phone up and you scan it and away you go. What he had was a QR code that took people to an anti-vax site. Oh, <laughs> goodness me. Right. Okay. So, you come along, you scan that and you say, gee, is this restaurant trying to tell me that they're against vaccination, or is this a new government initiative to say we shouldn't be vaccinated? Oh, I'm a bit confused here, but whatever. People have read a bit about anti-vaccine, and, and then they go on and have their coffee anyway, regardless. So he's actually been arrested. I didn't know this, but there, there is a specific crime associated with COVID-19. He's been charged with two counts of obstructing operations related to COVID-19. There you go. Wow. There's a there crime you, you didn't know about. But, but so, so right now, he's just put up some QR codes that led you off to an anti-vax site. Yep. There are so many other things that you, you might not want people to see that Correct. could be led to with a dodgy QR code. Yeah, exactly right. So there's a whole range of things now. Pandora's maybe we're, maybe we we're, we're doing the wrong thing here, James. Maybe there's all these scammers <laughs> out there going, hold on. Hang on a second. I didn't think of that. Maybe <laughs> I should have a go at that. Naughty year nine students around high schools all over the world <laughs> are now thinking to themselves, right, well, can <laughs> have some fun with this. Right. <laughs> so just for the warning of those year nine students, uh, this particular gentleman faces a fine of up to $10,000, so they might think about it twice yeah, before right. they go and do it. Okay. So not a great idea from that perspective, but it is interesting. We do have a lot of faith in tech, a lot of faith in what we've been taught to do, if you like, during COVID-19. And here's just one example of someone having taken advantage of it. And probably to a certain extent, I'm interested in the fact that no one's done it before. It almost mm, seems like yeah. too obvious now that we see it. But, but as we get deeper and deeper into the future uh, with our use of tech, uh, it's just the Boy Scout motto, just yeah. be prepared. You've yep. got to be ready. If you're going to use that tech, then you've got to be ready for someone to misuse it. Wind turbines. Joe Hockey told us that they were the unsightly or more unsightly than an open-cut coal mine. <laughs> Matter of opinion there. Um, they're set for a big makeover. They are. Now, we're used to the wind turbines that have got a big propeller. It looks like a big airplane propeller. And, and again, I've been down to some construction of wind turbine farms, and I just I find it fascinating. they're very impressive. They are. And even I remember sitting on the side of the road while one of the propeller blades was brought in, and you see them up on the tower, and they look big, but when they're on the road beside you, they are big. It's, it's I think, roughly some turbines, the radius that it, it spins out there is in the vicinity of 60 or 70 metres, probably even bigger than that, some of them now. So they're big. But one of the problems with uh, a turbine, wind turbine farm or a wind farm, often they'll put them in a grouping, say, for example, out in the strait, in an ocean strait. The wind that hits the front turbines is getting the full value for that wind. And so we're getting all the efficiency we need from that? Correct. As it goes through the wind farm, 
the subsequent rows get less of that wind because some of that wind energy has been absorbed by the front turbines. So the efficiency of the back turbines is dramatically lower than the efficiency of the front turbines. It's not a major drama, but it's something that researchers have been saying, is there some way we could just fix this problem a little bit? And they've actually come up with the idea of horizontal axis wind turbines compared to vertical axis wind turbines. So the ones that we see now have got a horizontal axis. Mm. But if you spin those turbines vertically, so you spin them around the mast... So pointing up to the sky. Pointing up... Well, no, not so much pointing up to the sky. They'll actually have a rim around it where they will actually spin literally around... Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so rather than a propeller sitting on top, it would actually be a device, like a a vertical device, but rather than it spinning in front of the mast, it would spin around the mast. Yeah, okay. For people listening here, I'm using my hands to show James exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about here, which doesn't help anyone I'm listening a at all. Learner, folks, right? <laughs> but the idea of those is that they found that if you have those sort of turbines, the vertical axis turbines, having them near each other actually helps. You actually generate some turbulence that helps another one beside. In fact, they found having one in isolation is not as efficient as having two beside each other. Ah, so it lends itself to a big herd of wind turbines. That's exactly right. So you, you actually increase efficiency across the whole farm, more to the point, I suppose, the ones at the back of the farm rather than the ones at the front. The front probably are okay. But the whole farm, they're talking about an increase in performance of maybe 15%. So again, when you've got the same structure, if you like, the same amount of mass, the same area covered roughly, you're getting 15% more energy being produced by that. So again, it's, it's a great way to produce more power from effectively the same costing, the same components. Now, we won't see these rolled out today because the research is still being finalised, but I, I think as we see more and more wind farms being built, this is the sort of technology we'll see in them. Everyone hates getting broken into. There's no secrets there. Um, and we're talking about breaking into your car, even when it's just something uh, menial, like um, yeah, you change out of your drawer, your change drawer in your car, or out of your dashboard there. Or maybe it's an iPod with all your favourite 80s classics on it. Um, but that's pretty old hat now. What are the crooks getting their attention into right now? Well, you might never notice it, James. You might have your car broken into and you don't notice it. You come back, there's, there's no visible sign of this car having been broken into, but you might have had your catalytic converter stolen. And this is something that was, if you remember back... That's a sore spot. Yeah, (laughs) right, okay. (laughs) Back in the 70s, they started introducing catalytic converters into cars to really reduce the carbon monoxide and the nitrous oxide emissions. So obviously to reduce the the pollution, it was obviously running rampant in the the 70s. And the atmosphere has thanked us for it. Yeah, yeah, well, not quite sure they're there (laughs) yet, but they're thanking us for it. But inside a catalytic converter is palladium. Now, palladium at the moment, it's just gone through the roof in terms of its value, more valuable than gold at the moment. You're paying, if you go and buy a bit of palladium, you'll pay over $3,000 for one ounce of palladium. Back in 2018, for example, it was about $1,000 an ounce. So it's tripled in those last three years. So if someone tries to come and purchase something with a handful of palladium from me, I'm going to be checking their pockets for a catalytic converter. That's right. right. Can I see that catalytic converter? <laughs> they, they might have even left it in the in the car and just oh, pulled it apart. It depends how quick it might be. But you might you might rip it open the bonnet, pull the catalytic converter out. They're a fairly small unit. Yeah. Off you go. You probably don't want to hang around there as a thief and actually pull it apart and pull out the palladium no, no, out no, of it there. But t- you just take the whole thing out there. When you jump in your car and drive off, you don't notice that you've got extra exhaust fumes coming out the back. You're yeah, just driving your car. Carbon monoxide and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, it's all fine. So this is the latest um, thieving component, if you like. To give you an idea, at the moment, they're running, in the US alone, they're running at 1,200 thefts per month 
of catalytic converters. Twelve hundred. <laughs> so, well, I know there's a lot of cars out there, but still, twelve hundred seems like a rather large number to lose um, catalytic converters. Right? For a random thing that, you, as you say, you, you might have your, your window smashed one day and you, you left your phone in the console and it gets stolen, but to have. 1,200 catalytic converters stolen out of cars oh, per yeah. month in the US. It's actually a, a real problem. And you're not going to notice until you get car serviced and the mechanic says, what's happening to your catalytic <laughs> where, converter? Where, and you go, well, what? It's, it's not the first <laughs> thing you think of when you have your car serviced. Oh, By the way, wow. check my CC, will you, yeah, just to make yeah. sure it's right. <laughs> so it is an interesting one. And the things that people will come up with to steal. But again, I, I think just keep an eye out for those people trading palladium around you and then go mm. and check your catalytic converter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if your neighbour suddenly starts getting a, a, a bit of platinum him on the market, you might just go, where'd you get all that from, buddy? <laughs> How'd that come about? Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning in once again uh, to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickinson. My name's James Eddy, and for you listening in, 